We're doing villains now, I'm Dracula. Villains. Dracula. Past the Golden Popcorn, an MTV Movie Awards podcast where we look at the various films nominated for MTV Movie Awards in all the various categories and try and figure out who really should have won. I'm Kenny Sage, a foremost movie expert. And I'm Ben Craig, a foremost villainy expert. And joining us again this week, I think last time you were on, you were like a dance expert. I'm not sure if any of that applies now, but we'll, we'll figure something else, but... One of the hosts of the Can I Kick It podcast, uh, Emilio Diaz, is back with us. Hey, Emilio, how's it going? It's going good. Uh, what if I'm a uh, European travel expert? Yeah, that works for that. Definitely some European travel this week. Um, yeah, the European planet of Naboo. <laughs> um. <laughs> we all love Naboo. <laughs> European time travel. Um, lots, lots of stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of traveling. Yeah, t- today we we're talking Best Villain 2000. I forgot if I set that up. and Yeah. The turn of the millennia. So, Emilio, I think last time you were on for Kissing, I, of course, asked you your history with, with kissing on screen or otherwise. So, now, kind of similar question. What is your history with villainy uh, in movies or otherwise? That's... An interesting question. I mean, getting into and otherwise is like, you could just go in a lot of directions. But just starting with movies, I don't know. I feel like most people, you tend to find villains very compelling in movies. You find, like, there are whole swaths of genres of film in which the villain is the most interesting, compelling part. Like, if you look at, like, slasher horror movies or sometimes like criminally thrillers and uh, like spy movies as one of these movies tends to be a send up of you and they're just uh they're just fun to think about fun to talk about fun to like consider different motivations point of view fun to see an actor just ham it up give a big performance as they often give space for actors to do a lot of like British thespians just going ham with their villain performances. Um, I guess I, I'm trying to think of like who my favorite villains are. I really like the Terminator in the Terminator One. I think that's a great villain. Who else? Who else? Who else? I like Freddy. Freddy's fun. I I don't know. I how how much of you talked about your history with favorite villains and stuff like that on this podcast. Um, not, well, not as much, but I tend to agree that, yeah, villains tend to be the sort of best parts of film. Like, when we did the best ki- kiss runs, there was a lot of kisses on there which were, like, weirdly nothing, where you're like, how did this get nominated? They like the actors, but with villains in the most part, with, like, a few exceptions, I think, 
they're always at least kind of interesting where you're like, okay, yeah, I see kind of how this might have gotten there. Um, And we'll say these movies, well, I guess like at least one of these movies, I'm like, interesting that you picked out a villain for this. <laughs> but we'll, but we'll, we will get into it. <laughs> yeah. 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 Kenny, do you want to, do you want to give any more? Is there any any extra background info about the the two thousand MTV Movie Awards? Yeah, two thousand MTV Movie Awards, which um, our best kiss two thousand one. I remember last time being an, a fun, an interesting one because that, of course, was when Boys Don't Cry had a best kiss nomination, and I spent weeks freaking out about how we were possibly going to talk about that movie. Um, so this, yeah, this time, of course, it's oh no, how are we going to talk about Sleepy Hollow? Um, <laughs> yeah no it's also it was also um a rare only like four movies and a four kisses too um it also holds like the winner of not only the best uh the best kiss of um of uh of that year but also the best kiss of all time cruel intentions oh yeah cruel intentions you also get to yeah yeah a movie that also got dominated for this category well, it was not our personal best kiss of all time. Um, no, yeah, no, but uh, it's it exists in the pantheon next to our choices. Yeah, and definitely yeah. less problematic than our choices of the fault in our stars and the girl next door. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> I we we stand by everything we've said at this on this podcast a hundred percent all the time. You have to. It's on um, tape. It's on wax. <laughs> exactly. You can't unsay also, things. Yeah, I felt better about also... picking the girl next door when Ben's like the fault in our stars. I'm like, well, I'm like, yeah, like well, my guy's yeah. less problematic than his guys. So <laughs> like, um... Yeah, so I win. Now the the fault in our stars kiss is like the golden ratio. It just had everything. It all lined up. Can I tell um, a brief story about the fault in our stars? Yeah, go for no, it. No, you can't. <laughs> so I've never seen The Fault in Our Stars, despite it being a big hit sensation when I was in high school. I just like. I really assumed it wasn't for me. Maybe if I watch it one of these days, I might find something to enjoy about it. But I just like didn't get around to it at the time. However, it was enough of a phenomenon that people would just like make references to it around school and stuff. And then I remember I once went on this like high school honor society field trip that was like to like the big honor national honor society assembly in Puerto Rico. And they had this like, they did this like bonding exercise or whatever, like on a big stage where they were like, well, to like break up the monotony and do something fun. We're going to have a bunch of people volunteer to come up on stage and then we're going to throw up a bunch of these little pieces of paper with letters written on them. And we're going to tell everybody on stage to like catch one. So they threw it up and I got the letters T.I. and then I found three more, two more people who got like Ta and Nick, and we had to recreate a scene from Titanic. And then everybody else had to recreate scenes from, based on the movies they got the pieces of papers with. And another group got The Fault in Our Stars. So they were like, How do we recreate this? And so one of them gets on stage, they take out their Apple earbuds, and they put them in their nose. To pretend as if they were a respirator. 
and then they just recreate a scene from The Fault in Our Stars, and that was the biggest laugh I've ever seen at a live audience in any context. <laughs> That's really good. <laughs> they uh. could have recreated uh, Kissing at the End, Frank House. Just... <laughs> Listen. Uh. I have no further details apart from just hearing people laugh and laugh at that singular choice. Do I condone that response? Who knows? But <laughs> that is my only relationship to the film Fault in Our Stars. Yeah. Oh, that's a good tangent. Um, so the 2000 yeah. MTV Movie Awards were hosted by Sarah Jessica Parker. She had 15 different costume changes in a reference to her status as a fashion icon. And there was a maintenance spoof or a matrix spoof where Jimmy Fallon played the role of Neo. <laughs> I I feel like well, <coughs> Sorry, I had to cough. Um I feel like yeah, I feel like I've seen that before and it was it was very, very confusing as a kid. Cause like I didn't I feel like I saw it on like YouTube or like on SNL or something, and it would always just really confuse me because Matrix is already kind of like a trippy movie. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> but I do, I do like vaguely remember that Jimmy Fallon skit. Yeah, it's weird because it's like obviously there is the more iconic MTV Movie Awards Matrix trilogy bit of like the Will Ferrell architect scene bit. That is what I mostly associate with those two entities. Yeah, the MTV Movie Awards Reloaded. Um... Which I'm not sure if I, which I still not not sure if I've actually watched. I've, yeah, I think we've talked about it, and I'm like I haven't. Maybe I'll get around to it for like 2004 or whenever that pops up. Yeah, ergo vis a vis concordantly. Uh, <laughs> uh, best villain this year was presented by George Clooney and Mark Wahlberg. Stars of The Perfect Storm, where the real villain was nature. Um, <laughs> then star of three kings yeah hey. and this is a year um of all the of all the films we covered the only one that got a best movie nomination was austin powers the spy who shagged me it lost to the mate lost to the matrix um that's oh, fair yeah yeah and then and, uh best new filmmaker was uh spike jones I think I'm not. I don't know how you pronounce the last name. Uh, yeah, Jones. Yeah, uh, Jones, for yeah. being for, for being, being John Malkovich. Ooh. Yeah, I really like that movie. Um, it's it's a really, it's a really fun, weird movie. It's definitely worth a watch if you haven't. Yeah, Spike. Jones. I mean, Spike. Spike Jones, great director, should make another movie. Refuses to. Should direct another Weezer music video. Maybe one of these days. <laughs> Listen, he should he should just be making things that aren't just producing Viceland TV shows. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then two of the films we're about to talk about, Talented Mr. Ripley and Austin Powers, also got Best Musical Sequence nominations, but they lost to a little animated film called South Park, Bigger, Longer, and Uncut for Uncle Fucka. <laughs> <laughs> that, I feel like they're are better there are definitely better songs in that movie but that at speaking as someone who um 
was definitely I was definitely three when this came out, but when I saw it eventually, um, that was the one that tickled me the most pink at like whatever age I was. So I can see why it maybe maybe edged out the other ones. The South Park movie is one of those things where I enjoy it for a lot of reasons, but one of them is all the songs there. That is like full orchestration. Like they got an orchestra. I'm like, imagine just being part of the orchestra that had to like do the music for the song Uncle Fucka. Like it's <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah. Oh, and then the Pod Race won best action sequence. Yeah, I guess hmm, I might have I might have words about that when we get there. Interesting. Um, yeah. Well, but yeah. <laughs> uh, without further ado, though, I think we can get into it. Um, so, for best villain two thousand, the nominees are um, Matt Damon, the talented Mister Ripley, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Cruel Intentions, Ray Park, Star Wars Episode One, The Phantom Menace. Christopher Walken, Sleepy Hollow. And the winner, Mike Myers in Austin Powers, The Spy Who Shagged Me. Yeah, baby. <laughs> yeah, baby. Oh, man. Yeah. What did, what did you guys think of uh, the second Austin Powers? So I have two things to say. First thing is that by all accounts, it's the worst one. Second is that I say by all accounts because it's also the only one I've seen in full. That's funny. I'll say I like this more than Goldmember, just or, which I just watched last last night for a future episode of the podcast. But interesting that I guess I can see why people who might prefer Gold Goldmember to this one. But I feel this introduces some of. At least one of the elements people love about the franchise so much, Mini Me. <laughs> oh, Mini Me. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. This one introduces like a lot of things. Um, I think I like this one a little less than the first one, um, and I, I have not seen Goldmember recently enough to know how I feel about it. Um, but no, like I, I think I've I gushed enough in my before we talked about it. But like something I've said, and I think I stand by, is that like. The Austin Powers movies are, like, pretty good, and I like them. But, like, the Austin Powers character is just so fun and charming that, like, I I never lose my smile while watching any of the movies. Yeah. But I guess it's, like, it's weird for this category. Because I think I do agree that Austin Powers, the character, is, like, a pretty, like... It's, like, a dumb but charming performance and character that, like, sort of coasts you on. Doctor Evil is like, like as we like all might know, it is like eighty percent a Lauren Michaels impression, and then twenty percent just like him doing Blofeld from the James Bond movies, and I and it's like it's functional. I guess it like does what it's what is the point of it, but it's certainly not what I think is the standout from that. Yeah, I I think I can agree. Um, I do. I think I like Doctor Evil a little more in this movie, just because I feel like he just gets to be in it more, and he gets to have like more sort of like pretty funny moments, and he also gets like Mini Me, which I think is like a really a really like fun dynamic. Um, like because in the first one, he doesn't have like much to do, or he doesn't he's not in it for a majority of it, or like as much as he is in this one. 
Um, and then we also like there's also like the introduction of like uh, of Fat Bastard as well, um, who is going to become like a staple for the, for the one more in the series movie. Um, I mean, he's not really in Goldmember a lot. It's kind of he pops up yeah, at the end, and then it's like a Jared from Subway joke, which aids really well. No, um, he's he's in the uh, the sumo scene. He's, he's he's he has his scene. Oh right. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like if I were to yeah, if I were to like kind of like sort of overarching how I feel about this movie in relation to the first one is that. Um, I like I like Doctor Evil more in this, but I like the first one more overall. And I think, weirdly enough, I think that comes down to like, um, I think I much prefer um, uh, is is Elizabeth Hurley to um, Heather uh, Graham. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, yeah, I, I I don't know. I think it's just, and I don't even think she's not even giving like a bad performance in this. I just think that if you're she she's essentially a character that is she is like she's like another Austin Powers sort of so there's not really like it's it lends itself much worse to like being like a fun dynamic where it seems like she's really only there to sort of finish an innuendo um and doesn't really get to like doesn't really have any friction with her protagonist that was in the first one yeah. Yeah. I mean it's for sure they're just casting another famously hot person. Yeah, it's yeah, it's weird cuz like um she kind of like she gets about just as much characterization in this movie as like I I wanna hump a lot. Um which is which is sad. I feel like there's I feel like there's something you can do there. Uh, but I feel like this movie definitely doesn't take advantage of that. Yeah, um, I think part of it, and like I would agree that I think yeah, Vanessa Kensington's like a better character, and Heather Graham is someone who I've liked in other stuff. She does a really good arc on Scrubs for like a season, but it, but I think part of it is because essentially the idea of this movie is Austin Powers' mojo has been stolen, and then she is kind of in theory, supposed to be filling that gap a bit while he's going, but Austin Powers without his mojo is not really much different from Austin Powers with his mojo. And of course, obviously, yeah. the idea is it's revealed that he never actually lost anything, but it but it still, like, does not lend to as much of a contrast than if you suddenly had him, like, just being mopey, which, because, of course, you don't really want a mopey Austin Powers. Let's... Yeah, that would be a... That would, like... Yeah, I I I hundred percent agree in that. Like, if if you took out the scene where his mojo gets taken, like you wouldn't notice. It could have just been like them trying to stop Doctor Evil from blowing up Washington, um, and like it's only like the scene at the end. Like he doesn't feel any less like himself. Um, I think another thing too is Austin Powers. Obviously, a big part of the first one is he's from the sixties, and suddenly he's in the nineties. The 90s and it's that con contrast and then this one like has the idea where they're like okay well they go back to the 60s and they do stuff in the 60s which and i think i'm trying to trying to remember because jackwell is like in the six she's like from the 60s right like yeah she, she's um i think she's cia 
I think, yeah, but she's, like, from, like, the 60s. Yeah, so maybe a better move would have been if she was from the 90s and you could have that kind of culture clash again of her having to deal with, like, the, the 60s stuff instead of just, well, now everyone's in their element. Like, you kind of lose that fish-out-of-water appeal. Yeah. Yeah, I know exactly. And that would also, like, make her, like, more interesting as well and, like, have more to do. Um, yeah, like, yeah. This um, this movie is one of those ones that uh, it's really um. I think this movie like has really really. Str- I think this movie has like stronger, more elaborate bits than the first one. Um, like the rocket that like looks like a penis, or like the whole like silhouette on the tent. Um, and like I I like I think I have to give the the movie props in that like bits like that are really really funny to me. <laughs> Um, whereas like bits that sort of over, I want in quotes overstage their welcome in the first one were like some of the not best parts of that movie. Whereas it feels like this movie was able to sort of have a joke that went on for like maybe too long and still ended up being pretty funny. Yeah, I think I might have laughed a bit more at this one. Um, I do did enjoy the return of the bit where. Once again, Dr. Evil's, like, legitimate operations are doing incredibly well. Like, they've bought Starbucks, and he doesn't really have to do anything, but nevertheless, like, he just has to, like, do evil stuff anyway. It's just... That's Dr. Evil's thing. Also, another thing is, like, Robert Wagner, like, in this one, because much of his is in the 60s, instead of Robert Wagner as, like, number two, you get a lot of Rob Lowe, and initially I'm like, oh yeah, Rob Lowe, he's pretty funny, um... Or like, I mean, all his problems. And then he doesn't really do much. He just kind of stands there. <laughs> yeah, he's a young, a young number two. Yeah, I guess like the funniest thing is just like the initial sight gag of him just like still dressing the same and having like the same eye patch or whatever like back in the day. But apart from that, there's not much to it. I guess another reason why I take obsession with the win here is also that he already won for this same yeah. performance. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think we said that this franchise, it's kind of like the Twilight of Best Villain, except it's like with Austin Pappers. Like it's... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he is nominated again for Gold Member. He does not win that time, though. Yeah. He's nominated as like two characters, technically, in Gold Member, which. I guess it's something we're going to have to figure out when we get to that one, if we want to judge that as one or two villains, but... Yeah, it's, it's it's super it's super weird why they wouldn't just pick one. Or, like, I I guess in that movie they're sort of both playing, like, villain duty. Um, yeah, it's like, yeah. Goldmember's not in it enough, and Dr. Evil is, like, a good guy by the end of it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. yeah. I appreciate that they brought Will Ferrell back again just to, like, repeat the gag where they kill him and it takes forever. Like, it's... Okay. <laughs> yeah, I mean, for no, sure. That's a really good bit. Because, like, the level of, like, success of the first one, I'm sure, like, it was just a thing where the first one was such a success they were just like, well, we need a sequel. Make it as fast as you can. The plot, just write something that happens and then we'll just focus all our energy into bits and then we'll just do the bits and give people what they liked about the first one yeah it's definitely more bit heavy than like the first the first one is like 
print does a lot of work in being like a specific like James Bond like parody and then with each successive sequel you kind of move away from that a bit as it becomes more about well yeah it's awesome powers we gotta do like the dance sequences and musical numbers and then just cameos though the jerry springer scene scene in this is really good just yeah i, I really do like that <laughs> yeah. um yeah i also um uh i really uh, something i really appreciate in this movie um spoilers uh for deadpool 2 um i really appreciate a movie that has time travel and then like the characters like use it for like the the obvious solution to like have, like win everything um i really do appreciate that that this movie does that that like um you know austin powers is sort of given this choice at the end but he doesn't really have to like choose it because it's a time machine that he could just like do both um yeah. And like and, and from what I remember, I'm pretty sure like the the Heather Graham character is just not in the third one at all. Like I don't even think she gets like a gets like a like a proper goodbye. Right, no I don't there, think. There is I think there was supposed to be a deleted scene that was gonna explain why she wasn't like around and then they just were like, uh oh, no, we'll 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 just like move on to like Beyonce as the one. Yeah, I just yeah. assume that it's just the same word. It's like, yeah, it's like a James Bond thing. There's always a new one of these, so we'll just have a new one. I don't think people will be that bothered by what's going on. <laughs> yeah, I think I've seen somewhere that originally they were like wanting Elizabeth Hurley back, and then there was some conflict, and she wasn't going to be able to do it. So that's why they're like, well, we'll just like kill her off or like reveal she was a evil robot the whole time. Just, like... Yeah, no, this this movie has, like, a very, like, casual sense of tone. I think the first one is definitely, like, has, like, the most, like, sort of quiet, serious moments. Like, when he sort of is, like, watching all those tapes. And then, like, yeah, as it progresses, it just becomes more like a, like, a sketch comedy show. Um, but, yeah. Yeah. I don't really, I don't think I have much more to say about it. I, I feel like, um, Amelia, you kind of... You kind of summed it up perfectly in that, like Doctor Evil is kind of giving almost like he's 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 the same character from the first one. I think he just gets to do. I think he just gets to do a little bit more in this one. Yeah, he does a little more. He gets his little clone. He sings just the two of us. (laughs) (laughs) Hard Knock Life is Gold Member, right? Yeah, yeah, that is Gold Member. (laughs) Yeah, this movie like starts a lot of stuff that i feel like three builds upon it's it's really strange like one one it feels the most uh weirdly like the most alien austin powers movie out of the trilogy um just sort of how like wacky it gets by the end yeah i also guess my last thing was before watching this I don't think I had realized, like, I was aware of the concept of, like, Mini-Me, but I just assumed that was, like, Mike Myers again with effects, and did not realize that it was, like, Vern Troyer, just, they just dressed up, like, as Myers, which, like, I guess, that that's definitely I mean, better than just do, having, like, superimposing his face on someone, like, doing the little man thing. So. <laughs> yeah, the little man strat, uh... Has has brought about varied results. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, I I feel like I'm the opposite. Where this is like, 
the thing I know Vern Troyer for is playing Mini of Me. <laughs> yeah. Um, trying to think. Yeah. Yeah. What? Do Do either one of you have any more any more final thoughts about uh, the sort of the peak, the uh, the the um, the climax, the the tipping point of our coverage of Austin Powers? <laughs> um. Yeah, I don't. Yeah. 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 This. I don't think this. So. Yeah. This. This series is like, like way more experiential for me than it is like an intellectual enjoyment of it. Where like I can dissect things. It's just me kind of just smiling the whole time because Austin Powers goes, "Yeah, baby," and I think both times I've watched it with my friend Ian, and we're literally giggling the whole time. Um. Well, this. I think also yeah. fits into why you like the cat in the hat so much. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It just it does it tickles my brain in a certain way. Uh, yeah, but yeah. with that I think we can move on to the talented Mr. Ripley. Um a little bit different in tone. <laughs> yeah, just a little bit different. Um something I cuz um I assume me and a lot maybe a lot of people had to watch this movie for like an English class at some point. I'm not sure if that's like an experience that scans. I know Kenny, you had the same thing with the um, with um, what's that movie? The Time to Kill. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, that's that's sort of my experience. Something I didn't like pick up on back then was that there's a lot of music in this movie. Like, there's like a lot of like characters singing and playing instruments, and like there's like very few like quiet musicless moments. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like it's a very vibey movie. It's a lot of just intoxicating you have a good time. The soundtrack does a good job of communicating that stuff. He's obviously a pianist at the beginning. Yeah. Like they go to like a jazz club, they go to an opera. Um Yeah. I guess um a quick rundown for any of our listeners who are not familiar with this movie at all. Um it's just it's sort of about Matt Damon's character Tom Ripley um going to go visit um uh Dicky uh, played by Jude Law um because he was like paid by Jude Law's father's um or Jude Law's character's father to sort of like bring him back from is it is it Venice or Italy or um some somewhere in Europe <laughs> um but, yes, it uh, is in Italy. Yeah, but Tom Ripley sort of becomes both infatuated with with Dicky and his life, um, and like wants to be like brought on things, but like those feelings are not reciprocated. Um, so Tom Ripley like kills Dicky on a boat after getting like it's 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 not like a methodical kill. It's like a it's an, an anger kill, and then what he sort of does is he sort of um ups, sort of uh, takes Dicky's identity. And he's sort of living these sort of like two lives, and there's like people that know him as Tom Ripley, and then there's people that know him as Dickie Greenleaf, um, and that's like I think it's like a, like half of the movie is is just the really like tense interplay of that, and he just he has to like there's like people he has to kill because they're getting way too close, and like it's just it's he's a very he's a very he's a very manipulative villain. Um, Harkening back to sort of the first couple uh, years or weeks of our um, 
of the villains tier list where it seemed like every week there was two or three like like villains that just sort of entered your life and made it awful. Yeah, for sure. This is I mean, this is the one that I was talking about where I where I was like, it this is interesting that you watch this movie and you pick a villain out of it. Cause it's like Obviously he does bad things. For sure. Obviously he's not a good person necessarily, but I do think the people who made the movie and even Patricia Heiss well I guess like the con- the conception of Ripley as a literary characters may be a little different from what is in the movie but i do think the tone of the film the tone the film takes is more like he's a tragic figure he's a person who is like locked up by a lot of complicated feelings that lead him to do things that aren't good that he maybe he regrets so i this is just a thing where i struggle to be like i guess he's the villain because he is a problem to these people but that's not when i watch the movie that's not how i am thinking of it yeah um yeah i know know you hadn't seen cruel intentions but um to kind of draw something it's very different from sort of um uh sarah michelle geller's character uh karen or um sorry catherine um where like she is she is very vindictive like she is like very like purposely like mean and awful where it seems like tom ripley is just sort of like he's he makes a big mistake and he's sort of thrust into these things but like he's not like a malicious bad evil person that like wants to be doing any of this yeah it's like he's a complicated figure and like i've never read any of the ripley books or i've like seen the films but i did kind of like this conception of it because obviously i was sort of like oh yeah it's a series of books and he's like a con artist and like a killer and bit of like a and just someone who was kind of like cold cold blooded so i kind of had that going in and was surprised that yeah the film like you do kind of feel for ripley like as a sort of tragic figure like when he when he has to when he has to kill peter at the end like it's clearly like i mean he's crying as he does it it's yeah yeah and this is also like something that like it's very weird because I feel like in almost every other movie like this, um, you're sort of kind of rooting for them to like get caught, sort of like the hand that rocks the cradle. Like you're sort of, or uh, Kate Fear, like you want them to get caught, and like even if you don't super like the, like the 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 actual protagonist, yeah, you. But like in this one, well, he I was is like the very much, like, yeah, exactly. I very much wanted like. I was very much like like weirdly happy when like his lies would work out. Um like I really did want to see him just sort of get away with everything. Um which I think kind of speaks to like the the quality of the movie's ability to make you really like empathize with him and like make him make you sort of like feel like bad for his situation and understand what he's doing. Yeah. I guess I guess we went straight into the villain talk so I I would just like to say straightforward that I think this is one of my favorite movies of all time, and I really, really love it. I think it's like a pretty astonishing work from like Mangala and all the and like the performances. Damon Law, uh, I forget the guy who plays Peter. I think that's also a great performance. Uh, what is? Oh, that's Jack name? Davenport. Jack Davenport, yeah, he's great. Like obviously, Paul Tro's great. Philip Seymour Hoffman, one of the 
best like pop in supporting performances as he is known to do. But like yeah, I agree that like if he got away with it at the end and he didn't have to kill Peter, I would I would exit the film happy. Like I would not be like Ripley was not brought to justice for his crimes. I would have I would be like, you know, he did some weird things, but he was just trying to like fit in and like you sort of get the like weird emotional web that like Dickie tangled him with and like well that probably doesn't warrant killing him. You do sort of realize why somebody would make a incredibly stupid emotional decision which is another thing about his villainy where it's like yeah he's a con artist but he's mostly a card artist for the purposes of getting away with stuff both of the times he kills a person it's it's clearly like spur of the moment like either emotional or like sad that this needs to happen he's like he like doesn't have these grand machinations for hurting people he just has these machinations for existing in worlds that some people think he shouldn't exist in it, which is, like, I don't know, a thing I may or may not relate to, like, obviously to a much less degree than killing people, but just, like, that feeling of just, like, wanting to exist within these groups of people and just not being, not be feeling like you were able to be a part of it unless you just make, like, invent a lot of stuff, and especially... There's obviously, like, the complicated stuff regarding your sexuality, which is obviously a thing that a lot of, like, Patricia Highsmith adaptations have, like, been about. Obviously, the movie Carol, famously a Highsmith adaptation about people dealing with homophobia and complicated sexualities in the past. Uh, Some readings of Hitchcock's Ranger of a Train also have some of that stuff. And... Yeah, I mean, like, if you told me, if you asked me which which of these performances nominated for Best Villain are the best, I would be like Matt Damon in A Walk. I think that's an incredible performance and one of my favorite performances. I don't know if it's a great villain performance. It might be trying to do the opposite of it. Yeah. But, I mean, I think part of what makes a good villain is, like, a villain, when the villain is convinced that they are, like, the hero and when, and this one, obviously, like, to, to a degree, the movie, again, is kind of on Ripley's side to a, to an extent, or, well, maybe not fully on its side, but it is one where, like, you know, he he believes his actions are justified, like, m- maybe they are even, like, justified to an extent, but I definitely agree that I, ha- I have less problems with, like, calling this, like, a villain performance than uh, when we get to next week's Jim Carrey as the Grinch win. But <laughs> it, yeah. But it, it is an interesting thing you raise up where, yeah, it's like it's an incredible performance. I think one of Damon's best. But like it, yeah. it, it is one where you're like, hmm. But is he really a classical villain? Um, yeah, it's really tough. Because um, yeah, because it's it, it all sort of like stems from like a really big mistake of like on the boat and like that really only comes about because he's sort of he's sort of he's sort of gotten like a taste of this life um and he's sort of like he's sort of been like it's been spoon fed to him he's being somewhat manipulated by dicky to like get some of his father's money and then all all of a sudden for what seemingly is no reason it's all about to be taken away from him entirely and he's about to go back to his life that pales in comparison to what he has now. Um, 
And then he also gets into this, like, big emotional fight with Dickie. And then you get, like, one of the, I don't, like, one of the maybe only scene in the movie that has, like, no music is when he uh, kills Dickie on the boat. Um, and it's just, it's, like, everything from that point on, there's just, so, like, such an air of, like, tension throughout the whole movie. And it's, like, it's it's really, really, like, like amazing how it's able to sort of um sort of do that and that like you you very much feel the same anxiousness that Matt Damon was during all the scenes even though like theoretically like it's like you want the police to be able to catch the person who murdered the murdered like Dickie but like you don't because you you know you know so much more about it yeah and it's like Obviously, one of the easy things it does to get you on his side is just, like, it shows you just, like, how, like, what his life is before this. And just, like, the entire process of the movie shows you just, like, how labored Ripley's life is. Of just having to, like, fake, like, learning all these skills and having to maneuver his way through all of these things. And then just placing that in contrast with just how easy everything is for Dickie that you just like you just naturally build an easy resentment towards Dickie to the point where where you understand this frustration in the moment of the act and I know Jude Law is incredible also like if they like I get it's one of those things where where another part of like if they had put Jude Law in as best villain performance, there's a part of me that I where I would have been like, sure, still weird, but it's like, I get it. I don't know. He's more aggravating to me, which I guess is like more of like the the feeling I associate with Ripley, though. As you said, obviously, like the ability to make you empathize with him is probably a hallmark of like a good performance of a villainous person so maybe i'm not giving damon enough credit for that of just like understanding like playing it completely honestly and the movie letting you fall wherever you may on this character yeah i think i think something that definitely makes me it definitely makes me like kind of okay with categorizing him as a villain is just um the 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 like the um the expertise in which he like manipulates events and people um like it's just um like the way that he just sort of like sets up things to sort of go his way and like all the sort of chips fall into place um and the way he's able to sort of like on the fly sort of cover up things like when he gets like the black eye how he's sort of immediately able to go like oh like dicky gave this to me we were in a fight um like, and just, like, that is, like, like, as much as, like, we empathize with him, like, that is, like, that is, like, really, like, insane behavior. Like, he's very much a, he's very much a villain that, like, uh, like, wants to sort of be in control of everything and, like, wants everything to go the right way. And, like, he doesn't really get a happy ending, but he, he gets away. Yeah. He gets away. It comes at a cost, which I think is needed. I'll say... Probably the closest I would come to say that, like, he has to maybe full-on villainy is sort of just with the Gwyneth Paltrow stuff, where it's, like, kind of half gaslighting, half, like, 
the point where he's prepared to kill her. But then when when she has like the chance to like try and say, say everything, like no one believes her. <laughs> yeah, I mean that stuff is for sure. Like he is being he that he is acting towards a person who is maybe has less reason to draw his ire. So that is that does lead to more villainy, though that, that that is like I guess a little more villainous. But that again, that in that situation, I guess he he like considers it almost kills her. But I guess he it's like the weird thing where he doesn't, but he still like makes people like discredits her. But I don't know. It's a complicated. It's like a that that's why I, what I like about the movie. I think it it. I think movies often struggle to capture a feeling of, to accurately capture a feeling of a person who is like figuring stuff out as they go along and trying to make stuff happen and doesn't have like a code, I guess. I feel like a lot of times when people come up with characters, they conceive them from this point of view of just like well these are the things that this person would or won't do and these are just like the lines we draw with this character and I feel like this is a one of the few movies where I feel like it is act it is like genuinely and actively exploring like well if he was pushed in this direction would he do this if he was pushed here would he do this like what does he want here what does he want now what did he want then is is he always willing to do this, or is he just willing to do this because he fits, feels put in a corner? Like, like I think there is a lot less assumed, like villainous potential within him, despite being a person who commits villainous acts. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think like another sort of. Another sort of, like, point is that, like, um, to, like, I guess, like, to compare him to some of the villains that, some of, like, the similar-ish villains that we've done in the past, um, sort of, like, um, I'm trying to remember what was the one, you have the name, um, oh, is it, is it, say, something like single white female, um, um, where, like, they're, these villains have a lot of like stopping points where they could just exit the situation like consequence free but they just continually choose to like do like pretty heinous horrible things where it feels like once um once tom ripley has like has killed dicky on the boat every like villainous decision he makes after that um is like it's not it's it's defensive it's not offensive he's trying to like trying to like uh mitigate disaster rather than just it's not like he got like power or like murder hungry and just wanted to keep murdering people like he made a huge mistake and every villainous act after that is in direct relation to that initial one yeah it's him not trying not to lose what he's had what he's like building with like peter um another an interesting thing and something that it's interesting to have kind of this and cruel intentions like sort of back to back back like this for both having villains that are either you know either subtextually or textually presented as kind of like queer because like i think you know as in 
I think this is a film that kind of handles that aspect of like Ripley's identity and his feelings and treats it like very humanely and not like some some ones where they're like, oh yeah, look how un look how unhinged this guy is. Like, look how depraved. Kind of some of the stuff that go they go fall into with Catherine a bit. Yeah, it's like it from the point of view of just like yeah, it's nice. It would be nice if this guy could have these things. It would be nice if he could have like this sort of easy, breezy European life. It would be nice if he could express his like uh, his sexuality in the way he might desire with people he feels attracted to. And it, it more plays it as a tragedy that he is in not a he is not in a position class wise to do so unless he goes through all of these con artist emotions because i feel like a, a thing often that villains get into is like well we acquired all this power and i want to do anything to like keep this going because the power is intoxicating and you can make that argument that that's the sort of character or villain type that ripley falls into of just like a person who's found something he really wants and he's willing to do anything, quote-unquote, to maintain that. But the movie does a good job of being like, well, this isn't an unreasonable thing to want. Some people have this thing and they don't stress about it at all. So it's like... So the tragedy is more of just like, who who are the people who have access to these sorts of lives and abilities to express themselves in the way they want to and who doesn't because um what was i trying to say here like yeah he's not like squashing people to get what he wants he's not like he's not i guess all of the people who he ends up hurting are people who have what he wants like he is a person trying to climb themselves to the top and most of the people he's hurt are people at the top not at the bottom so it's like it's also harder to feel sorry for the people he hurts even the like especially dicky peter obviously there's more of a thing where it's like he's nice to him he kind of loves him so it is more of a tragedy though and more sad for peter that he ends up the way he does but it's like ge generally you're not like the oh these poor people the pe the people that uh, uh Ripley ends up hurting even like when of Paltrow you're like well he discredits her and he maybe like does something fucked up to her life but she's like she's rich she'll be fine she'll find some new thing yeah and I think part of the reason why it's kind of nice that he gets away is because like Dickie said also not great so it's like you're like yeah when he when he's like all right i'm going to like to you can to stay quiet you can have like some of D dickie's trust fund or whatever like yeah because you're right because it does present a thing since that most of these characters are sort of ri rich and powerful and you know that ultimately they're probably going to be okay any anyways like it does feel kind of good to see like sort of Tom get one over on them. Even if, obviously, the, like, like the Peter thing is the closest it comes to out, outright tragedy, and 
even then, it's interesting that that's kind of the choice he has to make because it's like Peter or Meredith, and Meredith is with people. So, yeah. yeah. Do we have any uh, any final thoughts on this movie? Uh, my final thought is that people should watch it. I think it's a pretty incredible movie. I think it's well acted. Everybody's hot. The fashion is good. Being in Italy in the being in Italy sounds like a blast. As a person who may or may not uh, be traveling to european bodies of water soon i am very excited for this movie to happen to me in real life well i mean hopefully not everything in it happens to you in real life <laughs> let's hope you're tom and not dicky yeah i'll take anything that comes to me <laughs> Go with the flow. yeah yeah i think my final thing to say about it is that yeah like go watch this movie it's really really good and like one thing i think two i guess two things i think it does really well is like um, I think these kind of I want to say these go hand in hand is that it flows really nicely um, I don't there I feel like there are very few like hard breaks in this movie and I think that's attributed to like the music as well is that like like very often scenes will like start with like music playing um, it's like there's always something like going on in the in the background and I want to say like at the very least maybe like half or more than half of it is um like in universe music happening as well which is really really cool yeah uh obviously Philip Seymour Hoffman has the iconic line how's the peeping Tom how's the peeping uh he just listen Philip Seymour Hoffman he lost a legend all yeah yeah, it's always nice when he gets a pop up in one of these, and these, and it's like, oh yeah, I miss him. Like, but yeah, with that, I think we can move on to cruel intentions. Um, which yeah, I know you did not get to Emilio and Ben. You decided to watch both of the sequels. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I watched both of the sequels to Cruel Intentions. The second one being a prequel, and then the third one being a like a sequel in the same way that like like American Psycho 2 is a sequel in the same way that like like uh or um in the same way that like I want to say like The Cell 2 is a sequel it's just not <laughs> it's like it's tough to say cuz like I guess like somewhat tonally it's the same but like it feels flanderized it feels bastardized um like, I feel like the Cruel Intentions is built on a couple pillars, and neither of the sequels get it right. <laughs> yeah, and this is, and obviously for the listen, listeners, the last episode you've likely heard is 1999, but uh, yeah, we, you know, we kind of took a week, week off, and in that week we got a bit ahead and recorded 2001, in which the guest watched a bunch of yeah, watched a bunch of additional material, including sequels to movies. Seemed to have, like, a bad time with most of it. And then Ben thought, hey, that's something I should do for Cruel Intentions. <laughs> yeah, because, like, um, because like, we, we should probably, we can talk a little bit about Cruel Intentions before I go on my my huge Cruel Intentions sequel uh, diatribe. Um, but, like, I like, I like Cruel Intentions a lot. I think it's, like, a really... It's really unique. It definitely, um, 
it like it's very fun it's like it's incredible it's a it's a nasty movie it's, it's like a bittersweet inc- symphony yeah exactly um it does it also like reminds me that like oh yeah there was a portion there was a part during our kiss season where like we just had a bunch of like nasty raunchy movies in like the 2000s of like there was like um or like the in like the late 90s of like american pie and like wild things and just all these like and like i guess somewhat of like the girls next door um and like yeah, this movie, yeah, it's like, it's, there's a lot of manipulation, there's a lot of, uh, step-sibling incest, um, it is, and it is, it's very, um, it's, all the characters are very flippant as well, um, except for, I want to say, like, except for, like, Sebastian's character, like, halfway through. But yeah, um, like Kenny, what were what were, what were your thoughts on your rewatch? If you did one of Cruel Intentions, or I guess what are your your, your thoughts currently of it? Yeah, I wound up rewatching just as it had been lo- long enough, and my mom. I didn't watch any of the sequels. Obviously, I I as I believe I mentioned last time, I have seen the kind of failed pilot f- for when they were going to do NBC was going to make a Cruel Intentions TV show with Sarah Michelle Gellar, where it was going to be about essentially the son of Ryan Phillips' character, who, yeah, yeah, who, I mean, the film does not end with, like, Reese Witherspoon being pregnant. That's something the TV is like, well, maybe she could be, like, pregnant or something, which is kind of funny if, like, you have that in your head as, well, that's what happens next, because then it's literally the exact same end- ending as, like, the Terminator. Um, but... <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, the the main thing I discovered was that there w- was an off-Broadway jukebox musical about Cruel Intentions with all 90 songs, where initially I'm like, okay, so it's like instead of Bittersweet Symphony playing at the end, it's just the character singing it, which is what happens. But it also has like a sa- soundtrack, like, it's it's not just stuff that's like similar with that. There's a big number where, I mean, in a clip, because I definitely told you about this and we both watched, there's a clip where Sebastian sings Iris. Um, there's... Yeah. <laughs> and then like that. The ending where they the 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 supporting cast and everyone starts singing bittersweet symphony. Yeah, other songs included in this were "Love Fool," "The Sign," um, "I Want It That Way," just "Genie in a Bottle," like a bunch of stuff I would not say probably fit tonally with what Cruel Intentions is doing. Um, just. Though I also wouldn't say this lends itself to like a musical, so was a yeah. It's I I think it could be like a. It's really tough. I don't I don't think it would lend itself to a jukebox musical or like a regular musical, um, unless it was do unless it did something like really abstract for what kind of songs it would make. Because um, like the really only comparison I can have in my head is like the Heather's movie versus like the Heather's musical. 
Um, and for me, like, after watching, like, the movie, I'm like, oh, that, that kind of makes sense. Like, the songs kind of fit. But with, like, with Cruel Intentions, like, I can't really think of, like, show tunes sort of getting, like, thrown out into it. And then maybe a jukebox musical with, like, some different songs. Because, um, like, I did skip around and I just, I, I couldn't super get into the musical one. Because, <laughs> like, the, the iris is, like, it's really cringy and weird. Um, that that is just because it's like a live performance of like some guy just singing in a crowd and he's not even a bad singer um but it's just like it's it's strange it's strange cruel intentions is not a movie that needs a tv show or sequels or a musical yeah um imdb tv which i believe is soon to be known as amazon freebie like it's Whatever the rebranding is, they are also going to do a a reboot, which I think just means that they're just going to retell the story of this movie, which of course is like, like if you have forgotten, is the adaption of 1782 French novel Les Liaisons Dangerous. My French is not great for Canada, except instead of like the French aristocracy, it is set upon like rich high schoolers in new york um, which yeah honestly works for this movie and yeah i do enjoy it a lot i think sarah michelle geller is really fun as like the villain and obviously like the takedown scene of her at the end is as much as like this i think walks a line to what is her like cruel acts and what is just kind of like slut shaming um it is it is kind of, like, satisfying to, like, get her, have her that, like, high and mighty and let everyone just leaving. It's, like, the verve kicks in. Like, yeah. Yeah. Um, something on rewatch of this movie, something that I, like, I didn't realize, like, how, um, quickly that, like, Sebastian became, like, a became like kind of like a I don't want to say like oh he became like a good person but like how quickly he like gave up what he was like essentially was for like the first like half of the movie um because of the because of Reese Witherspoon's character um which is like it's very strange because that also I feel like that also bleeds into the into the prequel a little bit as well um yeah. Yeah, I think um I kinda I like I like um Sarah Sarah Michelle Geller's um Catherine as like a villain role in this movie. Um I think yeah it is kind of hard to tell like what is what is villainy versus like what is kind of like silly. Um but she's definitely like she's definitely like um a villain in the sense that like she definitely like tries to like ruin things really hard for what is trying to be like the good guy Sebastian in the movie. Yeah. She wants everyone on like a certain level. And I guess as much as when it's like, Oh, well, when it does come to like her, her takedown on the end, it's not just that she's done stuff. It's that she's also presenting herself as someone who is like uh, perfect and above reproach. And it is like a thing where like, 
she's giving his eulogy and she's like, I tried to set an example, but oh, he like strayed the path, which is just really funny because I'm like, it seems like unnecessarily harsh for like a teenager funeral. Like just. <laughs> yeah. Oh man. And like, I also forgot that he like dies as well. Cause it's like really quick and at the end and it's like, you don't, I, you don't think it's going to happen. And it's so weird. Um, yeah. Do you, uh, do you have any, any, uh, additional thoughts on, on Cruel Intentions before I go on my, my big rant? Um, Christine Baranci is in this briefly. She will have a bigger role next week in The Grinch. Um, just, so people can look forward to that. (laughs) And then, yeah, I'm, yeah, this is, as I think I said before, it's a film I, I'm, I always love some good dra- drama and just the levels this, the levels this kind of takes it to where it is, obviously there's like a lot, there's like teenage drama and then there's like this, which is just, you know, uh, as you mentioned, like step-sibling in incest and like, just every everything that's going on, every re- even really touched on like the Selma Blair stuff this time, but his funny though like, like it's wild that like Sarah Michelle Gellar like let's just in there because she's like oh, I don't like her I want to take her down like it's, um but yeah, go on about the sequels now let's let's hear about them. All right, so. The Cruel Intentions 2, also known as Cruel Intentions 2, Manchester Prep, um, it starts out with an exact, co- almost an exact copy of the Cruel Intentions opening where um, uh, Robin Dune, uh, playing Sebastian this time around, um, is like in like the principal's office and he's like being like, oh, I'm a good kid, I'm a good kid, you know kind of like with the therapist and then the principal gets a call from his wife and his wife's like why is there a picture of me in the school in like the yearbook and it's like i don't know it's like i'm naked in it and it's like it's and she's like crying over the phone it's like it's it was so weird because like i that was not one of the things i think was like i iconic about the first movie that needed to be like not even homaged like ripped off in the sequel um, cause it's also like done way worse. Um, uh, so in the sequel, they're like in, like, I guess they were kind of going into college in Cruel Intentions. And this one, I think they're in high school, um, or I guess prep school. Um, Sebastian in this one, um, starts out very much like he is in the first one. Um, and then going into this movie, I definitely had the thought of like, okay, well, by the end, he kind of has to be the character he is for Cruel Intentions 1. In this one, he so much faster turns into like the guy that like falls in love with the girl um, and like doesn't want to like screw around anymore. Um, and this movie is like the humor is way more raunchier and lamer. They make, like, three innuendos that are, like, that, like, three separate occasions. It's, like, oh, you want to come over and see, like, my, my, like, my 
like my kitty or my cat and they make like a pussy joke about it and it's it's always awful um uh, speaking of cats hang on yeah. i just gotta sanchez oh, yeah, sanchez My mom yeah. went to the bank, and I think he was just looking for people. And I don't know if I was getting on the mic, but it was me hearing a very loud row as you were talking about the pussy. So, <laughs> what a coincidence! But yeah, um, so like throughout this whole movie, there's like a new character played by uh, Sarah Thompson called um, Danielle, who's like like a flanderized version of Reese Witherspoon's character, where she's like way too pure and like doesn't want to do anything um and this movie is like kind of it It feels like kind of like a retelling of the first one a little bit where i think they like i want to say they have a bet but this movie is so much more gag filled than it is plot filled um there's also now like sebastian's also being hit on by um by Catherine's mother so like his stepmom in this movie um which is i I guess that's like a way of expanding on the sequel. Amy Adams is now playing Catherine as well. Um, really? Yeah. It's not as, it's just not as good of a character. She, she's like stupider at no point in cruel intentions. One, did I think Catherine was like, like kind of like ditzy or like stupid. Um, in this one, she kind of is a, like a bit of an airhead in some scenes, and it's so weird because that's just not what her character was. Um, and in like, so this movie is just a lot of faffing around, and then like when they're seventeen minutes from the end, and like fifteen minutes because there's like three minutes of credits, there's like a four minute horse bit of like they're riding a horse and it's like humping a guy and then right at the end at the very end it's like revealed that like sarah thompson's character was just a big ploy like she wasn't actually like a goody two-shoes she was like working with Catherine the whole time and then they're all just sort of hanging out by the end it's it's really stupid it's a really dumb movie and i thought it could have been really interesting that maybe you have sebastian at the start of this being kind of like a hopeless romantic and then maybe you break his heart at the end and that's why in cruel intentions he's like kind of like a bastard and they like it's weird because they they don't do it but then they also kind of do it right at the end but horribly and bad um so cruel intentions 2 is not a good movie it is it it tries way more jokes and is not funny at all um it was also supposed to be like a tv show it was like basically fox was going to do a prequel series called manchester prep and then it was re-edited together like it got canceled before it aired and the three episodes they finished they made into cruel intentions too and then yeah. added sexual content scenes with nudity for the DVD. Yeah, yeah, there's also, yeah, there's, like, a scene where, like, Sebastian's character is, like, showering with, like, two twins with their boobs out. Um, it's, like, it's just, it's way, it's weird, like, it's weird, because they, like, they clearly have more raunch, but 
it's just it feels way less like it also but it feels way less meaningfully perverted like the first one there there's an art to it um and then i'll i have a lot less to say about cruel intentions 3 just because it is it is it doesn't feel like cruel intentions 3 it feels like american pie whatever it is the only connection it has to the original is that it involves like sex bets, but like I don't think that's exclusive to Cruel Intentions. And um, uh, Christina uh, Anna Pa Anna Anna I can't pronounce the last name A N A P A U um, is playing Cassidy, who is the cousin of um, the cousin of uh, Catherine. <laughs> And then this movie is like, it's just, it's, it sucks. It's way less fun. Um, the main villain is an, like, unironic. He's, he's a, he rapes somebody. He's a rapist. Um, and he goes to jail at the end because they, they like, they fake, they fake, they, they like essentially tell the police that he raped somebody he didn't so like they fake it but that's to like get him caught for the first time when he actually did it um this movie like actually sucks there's no step sibling incest it it it, it is the worst piece of cruel intention uh media out there that exists um is the villain of the third one named Patrick Bates? Yeah. <laughs> That's also, yeah, the, the villain is named Patrick But he's like, he's so no... it's just an homage to American Psycho? Like yeah, it's... yeah, I kind of. Um, the weird thing is, is that, like, he before, like, the awful crime, he's no more, like, scummy than anybody else. Um, but, like, it is, it is, like, what a unfun movie to watch um so i guess the the moral of the story is cruel intentions is a good movie and everything else in the franchise is genuinely awful um the musical might be okay that might be the least offensive piece of non-og cruel intentions material um but yeah like (laughs) this deep dive is makes me hesitant of doing deep types in the future. <laughs> <laughs> and that is my, my cruel intentions rant. Right. Well, yeah. Uh, Emilio, obviously you didn't see the movie. Has, has hearing about cruel intentions made you interested in seeing it? Yeah, I, I guess I like sort of like a trashy, like 90s e thriller like that. Uh, I like Sarah Michelle Geller. I'm interested in watching it. I just uh didn't have time to get around to it, but it seems it seems interesting. It's like there's no way it's not at least fun. Yeah, and what do you think of the song "Bittersweet Symphony"? <laughs> it's good. <laughs> yeah, I guess it's supposed to be. Hope for a question like that. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Um, Now moving on. Yeah. Now moving on to a movie uh, in a galaxy far, far away. 
Yeah, Star Wars, The <laughs> Phantom Menace. Um, the first time I think I mentioned that Star Wars has come up on this podcast. Um, <laughs> yeah, where I'm like, wow, I can't believe Attack of the Clones didn't get a Best Kiss nomination. Like, <laughs> I mean, Phantom Menace. There's an argument to be made that it is at least the most discussed movie of the last like 25 years. Yeah. It yeah. Um wait, did I Kenny, was this before or after we started recording? Did I did I expose my my relationship with Star Wars, like where where I kind of what I've seen and where I stand? That was right before cuz yeah. <laughs> Because that's kind of what I wanted to start start with this. Where yeah, what are both of your kind of relationships with the Star Wars franchise and the prequels, uh, which are obviously a big point of contention? Oh, um, so I the, for the original six, so like the prequel and the original series, I know I've technically seen them all, but none of them within like memory. Um. I like I've seen like the Family Guy versions of all the original three like in way more recent memory than the actual OG trilogy, um, so I know the story beats. Um, I've seen the Force Awakened like the most recently, um, and even that was a while ago. And then I've no not seen the Last Jedi or um, Rise of Skywalker. Um, that is that is my relationship with Star Wars, and I've. I've played uh, the Lego games, but I've not watched any of the TV shows, um, animated, old, and new. Cool. Uh, yeah. uh, Emilio, what's your Star Wars? like? Oof. I mean, I saw, I remember seeing Attack of the Clones as a wee child in the theater, being like, that's great. Uh, then going back home, going to the movie rental place renting the phantom menace because i had not seen it because i was too young falling asleep halfway through uh then i think i finished it and then i've seen every star wars movie uh like main like skywalker saga i guess and not uh watched a bit of clone wars tv not a lot of it i think i've watched all of the gen d like one but i've not i don't remember really Played a lot of Star Wars Battlefront 2, the original on PlayStation. So yeah, I'd say Star Wars has been a pretty consistent piece of my life for the last, like, for basically the entirety of it. Which is very funny, as it is a thing I do not enjoy hearing any discussion of anymore, because it is all just very tired to be. But, uh, you know, that's Star Wars for you. Last Jedi, great. I really like A New Hope. Uh, Phantom Menace, very interesting, I guess is what I would say about the Phantom Menace. Yeah, I had a similar thing where by the end of Rise of Skywalker, I never wanted to hear anyone talk about Star Wars again, um, but we'll talk about it, but, but this was one where I, th- I'm trying to remember what came first for me, because obviously I'm like a few years older than... Uh, the two of you, and if I'm remembering the order right, which I might not be, because I was, like, very young, but I was given a Super Nintendo, and one of the games I owned for it was Super Star Wars. 
So my conception of Star Wars for a long time was based on this Super Nintendo game that was very hard and I never got more than like halfway through it, which I think is like essentially Moss Eisley still. Like I'm not sure because the first like five or six or seven levels are all on like Tatooine. It's there's a lot of stuff I didn't really understand. I watched the movie and I'm like, oh, why why is the Jawa ship not shooting at everybody? And where's like the crazy, yeah, where's the super bosses? Because for Super Nintendo, they had a thing where the boss fights, like, they, they were listing the manual as these are the super bosses. I don't think they even got to like Darth Vader. So I was just vaguely aware of it as a concept. And then I saw... I saw I saw A New Hope before this one, I think, and maybe Return of the Jedi. Empire Strikes Back, I'm pretty sure I didn't see until I was, like, older and was basically just aware, oh yeah, there's a nice planet and, like, Luke's his... Yeah, and, like, Darth Vader is Luke's father, though. I did get to see that one in theaters a couple years ago, and was great. Um, But Phantom Menace, I did, did in fact see in theaters... I was six. I don't think I understood anything of the plot. I'm just like, oh, wow. But, like, I was more excited for this movie than anything, despite not really getting it. Because I'm like, oh, cool, there's, like, pod racing. The guy has, like, two lightsabers. Like, it was just a movie that was, like, really cool for me. And at a certain point, as I grew older, I kind of leaned into, oh, well, maybe the prequels aren't that yeah, pre- prequels aren't that good. Pe- people have to be right. Everyone says it. And I watched this and honestly, still pretty okay. I think as a movie. Um, yeah. Um, I definitely, this movie, I think there's, there's a little too much Jar Jar and a little too much like, um, like council meetings or not sorry not council meetings but like the big like that big room where like people are doing like trade deals and stuff like that and like chairman stuff um maybe that gets paid off in the next one um oh, i think i i think it does um this movie it kind is, of yeah this movie is very very fun um it was very fun for me personally if you just sort of watch it like it's not Star Wars, like it's just a random sci-fi movie from like the nineties, um, like like The Fifth Element or something, because um, it ends up just being like kind of like quirky and like you just you really just can't hold it to like I guess like Star Wars standards, because um, it is a bit silly, um, <laughs> um, I, it's not a uh, definitely not like a groundbreaking. Um, opinion, but like Jake Lloyd is not doing the best. Um, to be fair, I want to say like eighty percent of that is attributed to like the lines they give him are just ridiculous and like silly sounding. If anybody said them, excuse uh. me, Ben, are you an angel? <laughs> <laughs> it's so weird. Um, I also like I didn't know that like. Because I knew that this, I knew that the prequels introduced metachlorians, but I didn't know they like they explained it so explicitly. Um, I thought it would be just like something they kind of like mentioned, like maybe expounded upon later. Um, but no, like they they essentially explained directly the force and it's like genetic. Um, 
like like in very very clear terms um uh yeah but um this movie is just like kind of if you just treat it like a goofy just silly like sci-fi movie it's very very fun to do that lens honestly even as a star wars movie i will say one argument that i believe that's been kind of put forward for the prequels in recent years especially once the sequel things came out uh force awakens in particular was at least the prequels are trying to give you something that's not just the original trilogy again they're trying to like expand the lore and like do things you maybe did not uh, did not expect which is something that like big franchises ip things just don't really do anymore like if you're doing a sequel to a thing it has to pay like very specific homage to the original and you have to like go for the same kind of effects and have like the callbacks so i'll say it is kind of refreshing to revisit the phantom menace and have have it just be george lucas going no here's like more corners of this world here's a bunch of stuff that like does not relate to anything you liked in the original uh, at all but hey it's something d- different like that, that part of it i think i can respect and it maybe helps me with my overall opinions of the film and gets me closer to what the kind of defenders see about about it um, yeah also like something that is probably going to be because i'm probably going to watch episode two in between this and when we cover episode three just so i have like the whole picture but like something that is true in this one and probably is consistent throughout all of it is that like ewan mcgregor is trying his hardest like um he is like a him and liam neeson this are like really really fun um and like i i i i haven't seen it in a while but i I remember Hayden Christensen's um, performance being something, um, but I'm I'm really glad that Ewan McGregor seems to be like he's putting in like a lot of effort for this, um, and I don't think that's something that like goes away the next two episodes. Yeah, no, McGregor's always been good. McGregor, this is a take I have been sort of mulling through like recently. Of I think he has the i my ideal leading man career of just being a guy who worked who did a lot of stuff was very interesting in it was not like insanely famous but you know made his money was pretty famous got to work with a lot of interesting directors got to make some fun moves i love it when um I think my greater take on like most Star Wars movies, including The Phantom Menace, or The Phantom Menace does find some ways to step by them, is that they all have second act problems of just like whenever you think of a Star Wars movie, you think of like the opening and then you think of what happens at the end of like the last battle or whatever, and then the middle is a bunch of like nothing. And obviously the uh, the Phantom Menace finds a way to break it up a little with the pod race, but it still has just like a lot of scenes of just people having very boring conversations in boardrooms and like going down to the Gungan city and like weird like slow convos in Naboo and stuff like that, which is its main problem and getting away from Darth Maul, who I guess is the villain 
who is nominated here. Yeah, because um, yeah, Darth Maul is like barely in this movie. Um, he gets to be a part of like what is like a really really good scene, which is like the duel of the fate scene, um, which is like really good. But like other than that, he like he shows up like I think in the desert on like a on like a little like hover bike once, and then like after that he shows up like, in holograms and next to um, Darth Sidious, and then like never. Never again until he's like in one fight and then dies. He he truly feels like the the Boba Fett of the prequels. Yeah, he kind of is in the sense that though I believe future attempts to like expand on Darth Maul's character in the Clone Wars Wars cartoon, which I didn't really see, and Rebels wound up being kind of more successful than when they're like, all right, here we go, the Book of Boba Fett. And they realize they did not really have anything to say about this character who everyone liked because he had a cool design and, like, even even though he didn't do a lot. But, yeah, Darth Maul's interesting. It's, I always forget that he does talk in this because it's only during that scene with, like, Sidious where he's like, at last we will have our revenge on the Jedi. Um, other than that, he is, like, kind of a silent threat. Um which honestly, yeah. I think is an interesting choice and it kind of adds to the coolness. Like, so, like yeah. You know, so, as much as I love a villain who can give a good speech, sometimes you do kind of just want that force of nature villain who's just gonna come in and start wrecking shit. Like, it's... Yeah. If I could make, um, also like, I, I don't know if this is a hot take, but like, I don't super love the pod racing scene. I think pod racing as, like, a concept is really cool. And I, I had, like, a, a computer game when I was little that was, like, pod racing, and that was super fun. But, like, the actual scene itself, like, just isn't super visually interesting to me. Um, so if I were to make, like, two changes to this movie um, to, like, sort of kill two birds with one stone, I would have had, like, Darth Maul, like, take part in the pod race. Like, he, maybe he, like, kills one of the aliens and, like, takes their thing before they start so he can, like, try and, like, kill, like, Anakin or something. Um, like, th- I feel like that would be, like, another way to make him more... It would make him a better villain for this movie. And it would also probably spice up a spice up a scene, a, a second of the movie that I just don't... I don't super love. Um, it's just because it feels like... It feels like once you see the first pod racer crash... None of the other ones feel that different. Oh, see, I I love the pod racing also. I don't know if putting Darth Maul in a pod would do do anything, especially because, like, part of what makes this film interesting is Anakin is not really on the villain's radar at all right up until, like, the end. I mean, obviously, like, I forget if he even does much interacting with Palpatine in the, this one, but, like, it, yeah. But I don't know that there'd be any reason for Darth Maul to go, oh, I gotta get him, but... It could also, be that, it could be that they know, they know that that's how they're gonna get that ship off the ground or something. Just, just yeah. to, like, make that scene, like, a little more interesting for me. But I, I might be alone in my sort of, um, distaste for the pod racing scenes. What do you think about the pod racing, Emilio? I 
I'm sort of in the middle here. I think it... It's like, yeah, I think I'm more on the side of, like, it is exciting initially and then just sort of settles to a place. It just sort of settles into a quiet monotony. I do think there is probably a way where you could, I don't know, spice it up, throw some different stakes in there, but it is... I don't know. It, it's like, I think it's visually very interesting, but I would be lying if any time I ever watched the the pod race sequence, I was, I was ever like, oh, wow, like, what's going to happen? This is so exciting. Like, there are movies like Speed Racer or the anime Red Line, which I think have similarly, like, crazy sci-fi car sequences that are, I think, do get, at, like, an excitement and, like, a visual splendor that something like the pod race just i exit out of quickly and i'm just like well when what's the next thing yeah i'll say the sequence always goes longer than i remember it being um obviously when i was a kid pod racing was like the most exciting thing that could like happen i'm like wow and then um I did see the 3D re-release of this movie back when Fox is like, we're going to re-release all of these in 3D. And then Disney bought them, like, I think a year into that. And that plan, like, very quickly was just, like, abandoned. But I'll say Pod Racing was pretty fun in, like, 3D. Yeah. And, you know, maybe I'm just kind of like... I'm displacing some affection there, but I do think Sebulba is, like, a fun design. <laughs> a character where maybe that's, like, the thing is just, just fun. get Sebulba in there more. Like, have him and Darth Maul team up. I don't know, just... So what, what do you, how do we feel about Ray Park's performance as Darth Maul? Yeah, I think... Honestly, I think he should, like, for a performance that is very much all physicality and the the last part of this episode is going to be a lot of Ray Park's talk because he is, because he also essentially is the Headless Horseman as much as Christopher Walken is, like, credited in the nom. Like, Ray Park is the one who is actually, like, riding around headless. <laughs> and Yeah, famously, yeah. Uh, I think... Phantom Menace and Sleepy Hollow shot back to back at the same studio in London, which is why there is some overlap. Like, uh, Ian McDermott is also in Sleepy Hollow. Oh, wow. Yeah. Was, yeah. I was unaware of that, though. I guess it goes in. But yeah, no, I, I think he's good. Um, Darth Maul is obviously, like, really imposing, and this is before. I think any any performance that has like a lot of makeup, obviously, if you were to do it now, and uh, Darth Maul, of course, famously appears at like the end of Solo as kind of a twist reveal, setting up something I don't think ever gets really paid off. <laughs> but like, I don't remember if he was just a CGI character in that. It's obviously part of the appeal of this, and. Part of the thing that uh, I think also gives Phantom Menace an edge is before the prequels get increasingly more like CGI based is like 
it is just like an actual person with like a lot of makeup on him to make him look like a crazy devil man like that's yeah no i i think yeah i think like the performance there's not he doesn't get like a lot of room to do much but like in the room he does like it's very very good like very imposing um it's hard because like i don't know how much we i can attribute that to ray parks and how much i can attribute that to like the makeup department and like the the costume effects with that because like that is like a huge that is like his like a huge part of his character um it was like yeah like horns and like the red and black um as a kid I mean, he I does some great eye acting for just like yeah. glaring and mm-hmm. no 100 percent. which he which makes up for the fact that he had no eyes in sleepy hollow to work with um <laughs> and obviously like star wars has maybe one of the most iconic villains of all time so when you have to like have a prequel and need to bring in someone new i also appreciate that uh, and again to kind of repeat my thing on for 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 as much as i think adam driver is interesting in the sequels especially in the beginning when they're like oh look here's another dude in a mask and then I do like that Phantom Menace approach. Is like, no, wait, this is like a space movie. We can have our main villain be like an alien with a cool design. Like, he doesn't have to be yeah. just, here's another guy in a mask whose, like, voice is kind of muffled. Like it's... Yeah. I And, of course, the the iconic villain you're referring to in the Star Wars franchise is Greedo. Um, one of the most iconic Star Wars villains. Yes, famous masked character Greedo. <laughs> <laughs> the masked Greedo. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Do you have any? Do either one of you have any more? Uh, any more thoughts about Star Wars Episode One: The Phantom Menace? No, I mostly agree. Ray Park's good. It's like I th- I do often think that like for stunty performances, pe- people tend to like. Do, like categorize that stuff as like not really acting and like th- throw it away but I do think that it is incre- it is like maybe the most that acting can be and I think he does a good job of just like f- through physicality uh, portraying the menace of Darth Maul and just like both just like the technical ability and how he plays the like the stoicness within that technical ability so I do think it is a good villain performance obviously it's like makeup and effects doing a lot of it's like you obviously cannot talk about Darth Maul and like his menace without the makeup job but I think Ray Park does a decent job but I I think that's all I think I have to say about the Phantom Menace yeah I also agree that like I think stunts are a bit of an underrated thing and uh obviously we have like a few villains in in this run who are played by like just kind of people know like who do like incredible like martial artists and like stunt stunt work like jet league and like Le- lethal weapon four like Z- zong Zi and like rush hour two who don't really get to do a lot of that so i do think like that final duel in with like all the flipping around like it is a hot a high point i think in the franchise as far as like big lightsaber fights go and kind of and park brings a lot to that um, and hey he then he gets sliced in half um <laughs> which 
which also made a big impact on me as, like, a kid. Well, first because I'm like, whoa, that guy died? And I was, like, five or six, and I was like, ah. And then, like, he got, like, sliced. And then I'm like, no, Obi-Wan! And then, like, when Darth Maul got, like, sliced in half, like, I definitely remember being like, whoa! Like, it's... Um... Yeah. Oh, yeah, and of course, Darth Maul's two or three actual lines were voiced by Peter Serafanowitz. <laughs> like, a lot of, I guess, of these last two performances, it's a lot of, like, uh, there's a lot of collaboration behind the performance, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a lot of people coming together to make to make Darth Maul appear. Yeah, um... For very, what little time he, he did in the in this movie, <laughs> but it it honestly it left a huge impact um, on like the whole on the whole uh, Star Wars franchise. Yeah, for sure. Um, but with that, I think we can move on to the final film, Sleepy Hollow. Which Ben, you were telling me you watched twice and did not like either time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. So I, yeah, I watched it. I watched it and I was admittedly a bit distracted, like doing other things. Um, and I just like, usually, and like, I've done that like before where like, if I have to like write up some stuff or like do answer some emails or something like that, I can like have it on, on my second monitor and like still be like, like either watching it directly or like side eyeing it when I, when I feel like there's scenes that don't require my full attention. Um, but like I came out the other side, just like not having a good time at all. And I was like, geez, like, I don't, I must have done something, like, wrong. Um, so I, like, sat down earlier today and just, like, I'm just gonna watch it and, like, no distractions. And I still didn't like it very much. Um, like, I don't have a lot to say about it. Um, unfortunately, it wasn't, like, a Disturbia-type disenjoyment where, like, it's, I have, like, reason I didn't like it. I just think, um, if I had to sort of, if I had to sort of, like, pinpoint what I didn't like about it. I think two major things about it was that the setting to me um, is like intrigue kryptonite. Um, I just don't like the, the setting in general, like um, like old sort of gothic witch town. I'm just, it, I just don't like those. <laughs> They're just really boring to me. Um, and then the second thing is that I didn't, I feel like for this story to work, I would really need to care about all of like the townsfolk or like the town in general or like care a lot about the characters which i just kind of didn't unfortunately um i can definitely see it's a very interesting story and like i'll give it props where it's definitely noted in that it is a very like it is a very like cool like looking movie um and then also uh Luckily so, I think one of the things I enjoyed the most about this movie was, like, the Headless Horseman and, like, the villain. Um, he reminds me very much of, like, the, um, is it the, the, was it T, um, T-1000. 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 He reminds me very much of the T-1000 that he's just a, he's just a, like, a direct, like, murder machine. He's, like, very calculated. Um, and, like, the, the couple fights he gets to have are, like, really, really fun. Um... And and as I think we've talked about it before, it is it is funny that um, most of this performance is done by Ray Park. But I also kind of like the Christopher Walken parts as well. He like he looks very evil and kind of creepy and 
he sort of appears near the beginning and near the end of the movie. Um, but unfortunately, like this movie just did not did not grip me at all, and it's really unfortunate. Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, I enjoy this film a lot, though I'm more, I think, interested in this kind of time time period. Well, really, I'm interested in anything that kind of brings sort of modern genre stuff in this case kind of the sort of procedural mystery whodunit type things and puts it in like a different time period um like there's there's a movie out in theaters right now uh the northman roger eggers which is like here's a revenge thriller but it's in viking times and so i always like that kind of contrast so the idea there where it's kind of like a mystery and and it also has the idea of, like, you know, its interpretation of Ichabod being, well, what if he was, like, kind of on the head of, like, forensic science, but no one, like, <laughs> believe in a time when no one really believes in science, and then suddenly he's confronted with, like, supernatural stuff? Like, that, that, stuff, that stuff was, like, really appealing for me, and, and it's also kind of like a slasher film, except all the slashers are, like, old British character actors, <laughs> Well, you, Emilio, what you got? I also kind of really like uh, Sleepy Hollow, which is not a thing I was expecting. I've seen it twice, I think. And I sort of watched it as part of uh, Tim Burton's greater filmography, which I found weird and kind of frustrating, and which is, I think, why I appreciate Sleepy Hollow, because it's sort of just like, a very straightforward genre exercise. I guess, I guess it's like sort of two genres kind of being matched up, but it's like, it is like a relatively unambitious movie, I think, which is sort of why I appreciate it. It is kind of just like a thriller set in Sleepy Hollow. There is, there's some investigation to be done. The headless horseman is around. He's killing people. The, Stuff of like the tree and the mythology is maybe like a little too much, but you know that that that's that's always what it what happens. I mean, I was was talking to a friend about the movie Prisoners, and they were like, "Yeah, Prisoners is all right. That it's like the most prestige episode of Criminal Minds ever made." And that's sort, of, and I sort of realized that that's always like what I sort of love, like, movies that I kind of love, movies that you could just be like, yeah, that could that could be, like, a 45-minute CBS procedural episode, but it's a movie. Like, I always like those, and this is, like, a prime example of one of those. Of just, like, yeah, it's sort of a mystery. It could maybe be, like, 45 minutes of just, like, you go in, like, you investigate the three, like, suspects. You, you find out the missing pieces, you like piece together some intrigue, and then at the end of Mystery is Solved, and a battle is had, and it's fun. Yeah, and it's kind of funny you bring it up, because, of course, I don't know if either you ever watched the Fox show Sleepy Hollow, but that is effectively like a procedural in sort of set around Sleepy Hollow, except they kind of have the element where their Ichabod Crane is, like, a revolutionary war hero who knew, like, Washington and, like, Ben Franklin and stuff. Yeah. Yeah, it was fun for at least a season where it's like, wow, how can they keep this up? And then the answer was, they could not. It's just... Well, 
Yeah, well, <laughs> I will maybe not say anything about the television show Sleepy Hollow due to a sort of proximity I have to people involved in the show. But okay. I'll, uh, yes. But I will say that I I do like Christopher Walken's performance in Sleepy Hollow. Um it's this sort of like walk and face menace, but it's like pretty good that it's like pretty fun, pretty like nice makeup. He's very menacing when you can see his face. He's also obviously like when it, you can't see his face, it is mostly Ray Park, as you mentioned, and it's pretty good physicality. He is very T-1000. He is in the pantheon of just like you kind of can't kill him villains in movies where he, the it's just like the ine- the terrifyingness of the inevitability of him. It's all cool. Yeah, it's yeah. Uh, yeah, I like that term, like the inevitability, and yeah, like this, the headless horseman. I think is just a cool concept in general. Like in in any version, the idea of he's riding a horse and he has no head, and he's also yeah. And also, like, his, you know, whatever weapon he, weapons he has in its wing. Like, his, I think, always just kind of exciting. Um, and Walken, as you said, it's mostly Walken's face, but, like, obviously, the bloody kiss at the end as he's taking, kind of, Miranda Richardson to hell is, I think, just really, really memorable. And it's, like, stood out in my mind for, like, a long time. I'm just... Yeah, I, I do. One thing I do appreciate is how there's like a lot, there's a lot of blood in this movie, um, and it's like it's probably one of the only like places where there's like a there's like splashes of color, and I I think that's really I think this movie's like visually very neat. Well, look, the tagline um, was "Heads will like roll" on. for a reason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like when he's chopping away at the tree and it's like spewing blood and there's a bunch of heads behind it. Like this, this movie does have like a lot of like, like some good, um, I don't know if eye candies is the right word when it's really gross. Like eye worms. I don't know. Um, like I will give it that. I think it is, I think it is truly just like, I can't get into the setting. Yeah, for sure. There's sometimes Um, times when you go to a movie and you're just like. Well, just like baseline, I'm not interested in like the setting, so this doesn't do and this doesn't do much for me. I know that there's people like that. Like I get that sometimes, like that about like high fantasy stuff. From like a lot of the times, I have a, just a trouble connecting and will hesitate to watch stuff I know is in that vein because I because I just there's just I I assume I would not like it, and a lot of the times I'm not. But even there, I find I often do find stuff that I enjoy. But yeah, yeah, I yeah, I'm much more lean towards more like more sci-fi than like fantasy, and that like extends to like sort of old sort of gothic stuff like that. Yeah, um, my period piece thing. I think also yeah. it depends on on the thing. Like westerns are a genre I have just recently been able to like actually get into and go, and beyond that. Uh, like I get it. It's all the same. The same. Um. Last of the Mohicans, I think, is a example I always go to as a movie that I think like looks gorgeous, but then it's like seventeen fifty seven. Uh, like I just cannot get into this time period. Um, but yeah, Sleepy Hollow, I think, is just like close close enough to the kind of thing I enjoy. Where yeah, 
enjoy where it's like, oh, it's the 1800s. There's like all kind of drama and secrets going on. Someone gets harpooned at a, like a town hall meeting. Like that's the stuff I got into. Um, that's Yeah. Also, I guess one thing we have to bring up to Ingles going to what makes a villain is while Headless Horseman is kind of the villain, arguably he's more like the villain be or not the villain, the weapon being sort of used by the film's proper villain, kind of Lady Mary von Tassel. Yeah, like he's not he's not acting out of like own his own volition, like he's being controlled. Yeah. Which makes him like an interesting figure because, of course, then his motivation is just, well, he wants his head back. Because um, if you have the head, then you can just control the horseman, which I think is an interesting idea that Burton brings to it. Um, yeah, no, I, I do like that aspect a lot. Yeah, and look, of all the Tim Burton films we cover for best villain, like, I'm not going to say this is better than Batman Returns. Um... And then, I don't think it's better than, like, Sweeney Todd. Um, or it might be. It's, I have to, I do like Sweeney Todd a lot. I'd have to, yeah, we'll, we'll see when we get there. But compared to, like, Planet of the Apes remake and then Alice in Wonderland, like, I think this is, like, some pretty good Burton stuff. And also, obviously, we're a few years out for the mo- from the most iconic Johnny Depp performance we're going to cover on this podcast. But, uh... As someone who, I mean, for all the very complicatedness of Depp and his various problems, and one of the more minor things is he is someone who, in his as his career progresses, increasingly just leans on, I can do a silly voice, and I can, like, be weird, and everyone will lap it up. And I do think he is putting effort into his performance in this. And he does, like, a really good job selling how frightened Ichabod is in this situation without making him, like, a full-on coward. <laughs> yeah. I mean, this versus Sweeney Todd, I get, because it's like, who is, who are they crowning as the villain in Sweeney Todd? I will, I think the villain, I, I think that's a Depp nomination. Yeah. Oh, yeah, another situation where it's like, I guess, you kind of have to give it to him. I, like, I, like... If I you ask me who the villain of Sweeney Todd is, the movie, I would go with the Alan Rickman character, but uh, or Helena Bottom Carter. But I guess it is it is fairer to call Sweeney Todd a villain, in, a, I guess in my mind, than Miss than Ripley. I'll say yeah, Sweeney Todd does have like characters who function as like the proper like they are the heroes you are supposed to be rooting for, um, who are not Sweeney Todd. So yeah. So, but yeah, I guess that that's more of a toss-up for me as a person who has really enjoyed listening to Sweeney Todd over the years, but think that movie is sort of a mid-execution of it. Yeah, see, and I watched the movie, bef- and then I listened to, like, the musical, and I heard some of the songs that got cut out, and I'm like, oh, wow, okay, yeah, I might like this I think I also watched the movie first, and I remember watching the movie and being like... And people say this is one of the greatest musicals of all time, like this. And then I listened to it and I was like, okay, I sort of get the whole thing and like why this was like a big thing before. And I think the movie just sort of, there's like a weird lack of energy into that movie until like the last like 20 minutes in which it becomes great and what it should be. But before that, it's a little, not what I want. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, but we'll get more into that in like a couple months um, when we get there. But yeah, anyone have anything else to say on Sleepy Hollow or? Not really. No. Cool. Then at that point, we can move on to our ranking. So, uh, yeah. Emilio, if you'll remember, we first we go through kind of the movies on their own, and then we do the villains. Obviously, like, you'll have, like, Cruel Intentions sort of just omitted from yours, but... Yeah, who wants to go first for ranking the movies, like, as movies? I could rank the movies as... I mean, I can go first. Let me do this. I've not watched Cruel Intentions. This is going to be based on how much I assume I would enjoy it based on your discussion of it. So I'm going to go... This is actually tough. I'm going to go Phantom Menace bottom. No. I'm going to go Spy Who Shagged Me bottom. Then Phantom Menace. Then Cruel Intentions. Then Sleepy Hollow second to first. And then Mr. Ripley all the way at the top. But I think I would like to communicate... That I think there is a significant gap between Cruella, te- I mean, between Mr. Ripley and, I th- and the rest of the movies that I still like sort of enjoy, but I think Mr. Ripley, I think, is a great deal better than the rest of them. Okay. Yeah, Ben, what do you got? <laughs> yeah, uh, for my movies, um, I think I have Sleepy Hollow at the bottom. Hopefully it's something that will like grow on me, but You've I seen I, it twice, maybe not. As much <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, maybe not. Um and then uh, above that I have Star Wars episode one. I think it's like a fun, quirky movie, but there's definitely a, like a lot holding it back. Um I like Jar Jar in spurts, um, but he's in it a lot. Um and then I think right in the middle um, I have Cruel Intentions, just a very, 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 like, weird, unique, fun, sort of raunchy movie, but, like, purposefully raunchy that I really enjoy. Um, and then for my top two spots, I think I will have, um, uh, I think I'll have Austin Powers and then The Talented Miss Ripley above that. Um, I think Austin Powers, I think, yeah, I just really like it. I think it's really funny. Um, I think the humor really came into its own in this one, kind of at the expense of some of the character strengths. Um, but I just, it's just, as an experience, I enjoyed it so much. But um, in that same token, the talented Mr. Ripley is just something that is just so captivating throughout the whole thing. Um, I absolutely adored it. Uh, okay, cool. Yeah, so for mine. Um, Phantom Menace at the bottom, it's, uh, I'll say, this is a movie that, again, as I said, when I was six years old, was, like, the coolest thing in the world, and I was all in on, on it, and, yeah, I kind of fell away from it, and I hope one day, with time, I think I'll be able to get, like, a renewed appreciation of it, but it'll never be, like, that high up for me. Then above that, probably Austin Powers, um, not as strong as the first one, but still. So pretty fun. Then above that, Cruel Intentions. Uh, yeah, it's re- just re- really good, really enjo- enjoyable. And then, yeah, I guess similar to Emilio, I have Sleepy Hollow second and Talented Mr. Ripley at, at the top. Um, just, well, both movie, both movie, I mean, 
Sleepy Hollow really good, and then Talented Mr. Ripley, like, just kind of blew me away, and and I went into it knowing that, like, Emilio and a couple other, like, of my yeah, good friends, like, love this movie a lot, so I was, like, expecting something on that level and was not disappointed. Um, yeah, great film, um, but how do the villains stack up? Like as we said, as as like we are, as we are talking about this, this is just very difficult. I'm gonna put Myers at the bottom, just because what if I enjoy stuff about Austin Powers? I don't think it is necessarily Doctor Evil, even though I don't, I don't hate Doctor Evil, but also I'm punishing him just for like getting nominated for a performance he had already given in a previous movie. Then second is tough. I'm going to put Geller's there sight unseen. I assume she's good. Maybe she rides it up. I do like Geller and that movie seems to give her a lot to play with. But I'm just going to put that there now. Third, I'm going to put Walken. I think he's very scary when his face is on screen. Obviously, there is like a lot of it that isn't him that is scary. And maybe I'm punishing for that when maybe I shouldn't. Like maybe I should think about this as the character of Headless Horseman. But their names are listed. So I can only consider what I know him to be doing. So I will put him third. Second, I will put, honestly, Damon. I think it is the best performance in the bunch. But if you are asking me to consider the villainy within this also, I think the strength of talented Mr. Ripley is not leaning on him as an out and out villain. So he's, he's like, all right, he's like weirder to argue here, but the strength of his performance still puts him second. And I'm going to put Ray Park in Phantom Menace. Number one, I do think like full breath, like villain of just like being visually iconic, scary, does villainous things, is intimidating. You sort of, you get a lot that you need to get from him in short bursts. He, like, isn't going to dominate the movie. I think he, like, does a great job with it. So I'm going to put Ray Park number one. Oh, nice. Um, I have uh, kind of the opposite. I do have Ray Park at the bottom of my villain list uh, for Star Wars, mainly just because I feel like he just doesn't get a lot of screen time. Um, and then right above him, I would have the uh, Sleepy Hollow, both kind of the joint the joint role of Chris Rock and, and um, Ray Park again. Um, and then because their scenes are, like, cool, but, like they, they like, they don't really have any motivation. They're very similar to the Terminator in that way, which kind of kind of takes away a little bit of... Um, of like what what you can really appreciate about them unfortunately and then smack dab in the middle i will have dr evil um i just have like i i just think he's just really fun i think he's like a very comedic uh very fun character to sort of like watch and i feel like he sort of gets to be a little bit stronger in this movie than the first and then for my top two spots i think i will have um Cruel Intentions with Talented Miss Ripley again showing out on top. Um, it is kind of uh, a little bit contentious of like how much of a villain is Mr. Ripley. Um, but I feel like like given the performance and given like like sort of the manipulation 
as well as sort of the um uh sort of like the desperation and like the acts he commits um all sort of culminate in him taking my top villain spot with the cruel intention ones being like a pretty close second just because of um where where tom ripley is someone who commits like a lot of bad for one big mistake at the beginning um uh Catherine commits like a lot of like not super like how horribly evil things but she does them constantly and for no real reason not trying to rectify anything just because like she's just like vindictive and like wants things her way um they're very two very different villains but two very nice villains nonetheless yeah so mine yeah well yeah it's kind of like not far off from everyone's um yeah b- bottom i think i also have dr evil just because i think he's good in this i uh, enjoy that it, like he's around a bit more but yeah awesome power is really the star of the awesome powers <laughs> franchise and it is i like obviously he is more like a comedic figure than the other villains which is fine but i think if you're a comedy villain, you really kind of gotta like maybe stand stand out a bit more. And I am not fully convinced that he like does that here, though. Yeah, he he's good. Then above that, probably Ray Park, Phantom Menace. Like, yeah, Darth Maul, obviously iconic design, just really cool, makes a big impression in a few short scenes. But yeah, I think maybe not around enough to kind of appear higher on the higher on this list for me then third i'd probably put uh yeah honestly probably matt damon with the caveat that if this was solely just on like performances and not just how they function as villains matt damon would be like number one with a bullet but yeah just in a thing where as much as yeah i think he is kind of of, yeah, like I I don't quibble with him being on the list as villain as much as I'm going to uh, next week for the Grinch, but it it is one where I think he is more like a tragic figure and like is maybe not as villainous as the best villain yeah could be. Then for my top, I will have I think. Yeah, I'm going to give it to Sarah Michelle Gellar with uh, Headless Horseman, Christopher Walken, Ray Parks in a pretty close second for Headless Horseman. I think a really good force of nature villain. Like, again, as much as is he the villain or is he like the the weapon, I think he's he's intimidating. He's scary. Like, it's barely Walken, but Walken does make a lot of those few seconds. And he, yeah, it's just kind of around more than Darth Maul. And then Catherine is, Ben said, like, she's, she's like, vindictive. She's cruel. You do kind of thrill as she's taking down a peg, even if, like, maybe some of the politics around that maybe haven't aged the best. And, yeah. And I do think, like, Geller is just really striking a good balance that I don't think anyone else could really do in that role. Which is maybe why, and it, like farmer attempts at like making cruel intent cruel intentions like a series or a franchise have kind of failed 
Because you really can't top what Geller is doing there. Um, so yeah. It's a nice varied, varied rankings this week. Um, different number ones for each, but yeah. I think all like pretty good. Like This was a pretty strong villain year overall, I'd say. Yeah, yeah. Even in the movies, I didn't, I didn't love. Like the villains were really good, and like the, the my favorite villain was from an, an amazing yeah. movie. Um, but now we come to uh, recommendation of the week, where we each got to recommend whatever we want the world. Um, Emilio, I forgot to remind you, this is something we do, so uh, you don't necessarily have to go first. But if you have something to want to go first, go for it. <laughs> let me see. Let me see. What? Sh- uh, let me see. I've been listening to a lot of the music of Steve Lacey. Um, he is sort of like an indie guitarist, makes like R and B type music. Uh, his music is heavily present on a lot of musicians that you might have heard of. Like he played, he had a lot of features on the latest Vampire Weekend album. He works with people like Thundercat, people like the Internet a lot. And yeah, I've been listening to a lot of his solo stuff. Songs like Dark Red, See You Girl, Inside, are all very good. And I think people should check him out if they want to. He's sort of been my vibe. Because he's sort of like late spring into summery vibes. Just a lot of like light vibe guitars. Nice. Uh, ben, what do you got? Yeah. Yeah, I'll kind of keep the music train rolling. Um, I feel bad if I've already recommended this. But... I, I do like them that much, so even if I have, I don't I don't mind it too much. Um, the musical artist um, Haley Hendrix, the <laughs> Hendrix is spelled really strangely, um, so it's Haley, uh, and then Hendrix is H E Y N D E R I C K X. Um, I'm a big fan of their album "I Need to Start a Garden," and they're just it's just very um, it's one of those things where. Um, there's a band called The Front Bottoms, and all of their songs sound the exact same, but I like that song. And uh, Haley Hendrix is is kind of similar to that, at least for this album. Um, but definitely give it a listen. Uh, cool, yeah. And for me, um, hmm, trying, yeah, trying to think. Let's... It's been a few things I've kind of been watching. Um, oh yeah, I will recommend the second season of Russian Doll, the Netflix original with another Tasha Leone. Um, the if you if you never heard like Russian Doll is kind of a show where the first season was sort of a bit of a Groundhog Day send up where Natasha Leone plays this yeah well, this woman who her life's kind of a mess and on her thirty sixth birthday keeps on the game events where she keeps dying and then reliving sort of the events of this and as it unfolds she yeah she finds that there's someone else who's kind of in this loop with her also going through it and it becomes a really sort of interesting uh mediation on that and then the second season which just which just premiered on i believe the 20th of april had takes kind of a similar thing where it's no it's no longer time looping but it's kind of um, time travel via like magic New York subway, but in the idea of quantum combined with so, the sort of quantum leap idea where she finds that she can travel back in time 
into the body of her mother. And it becomes a lot about her, like, trying to correct stuff she feels is, like, gone, like, that her mother did that maybe screwed up her life a bit. And it is, like, it, it's not probably not as good as the first season, but, like, it's a very funny show. And a show that ultimately becomes, I think, a kind of moving exploration of, like, intergenerational trauma and also the idea of, like, what happens when you get a bit too fixated on the past and it's really lovely and yeah people can check that out um and yeah that about brings us to the end uh emilio thanks for being on it's always nice to ha- have you on it's, it's the closest i think we come to like the podcast seeming like an actual film discussion show which is uh, Listen, yeah, a fun mode to be in it's- i often get too bogged down in things so that is a generous description of my process which is just thinking about things too much yeah it's we mean there's no references to like 9-11 or the oklahoma city bombing so like it was i think elevate for sure let's elevate the discussion now but is there anything you want to plug at this time (laughs) anything i would like to plug listen to can i kick it uh you can find it wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, I don't know where this is coming out, but I might. I am 99% probably going to go to the Cannes Film Festival this year, and I will see what that sort of coverage looks like. Um, but yeah, I mean, look out for that. It's going to be insane. Oh, wow. That's, that's nice. Yeah, this is coming out about a week from now. So. Okay, so in... Like, three weeks after that, I will be at the Cannes Film Festival. Wow, that's really exciting. Yeah. Um, and Ben, what do you got? Uh, yeah, I have my Twitter. Uh, it is at GakGak, G-H-A-K-G-H-A-K. And then in the bio of that is my link tree that has all my other links. Uh, cool. And... You can find me on Twitter at Like a Wolverine. You can find me on Letterboxd, also at Like a Wolverine, where you can find my thoughts on the various films we cover for this podcast and a list of everything that's coming up. Um, yeah, our our theme song is by Matt Samard. Yeah, our artwork is by Ben. Um, yeah, we are on Friendly Mush. If you w- listen to the show, rate, review, subscribe. Also, remember, because I am like 99% sure I forgot to do all of this credit stuff on our next week episode, which we've recorded. Then in my head where I'm like, I don't think I said anything about Matt. Or maybe I've just gotten too used to just like brushing, yeah, brushing past it. So if you listen to it next week and that stuff isn't in there, just re- remember this. Um, also, oh yeah, I'm trying to get re- better at plugging Matt's uh, Oh, no, it's, I'm like, I remember his actual SoundCloud, and the link he sent me did not work as much, but I'll work on saying his SoundCloud later. It's mini-something on SoundCloud. Um, And, yeah, I think all that's left is to talk about what's coming up next week in an episode we've already recorded. Um, So I know that it's not as insane as I thought it could have gotten, given the subject matter, but... It gets pretty wild and features even more unnecessary research than Ben did for this week. So, for Best Villain 2001, the nominees are Kevin Bacon in Hollow Man, Vincent D'Onofrio in The Cell, 
Anthony Hopkins in Hannibal, Joaquin Phoenix in Gladiator, and the winner, Jim Carrey in How the Grinch Stole Christmas. Yeah. So, if you have ever wanted to hear a nearly 30-year-old man explain in great detail why he feels How the Grinch Stole Christmas is a bad adaption, um, there's plenty of that in there. If you like bits about Sodom and Gomorrah, you're in luck. I just... (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. No, I I can't wait to have already recorded it. Yeah. But yeah, Emilio, thanks again for joining, and thanks everyone for listening, and keep passing that golden popcorn, and just remember... Yeah, baby. Do I That's make you randy, baby? Groovy. Yeah. Randy. Oh, <laughs> behave. Just. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah. Bye, everybody. Uh, stay groovy.